everyone, welcome to another episode of No BS. I'm Christina. And I'm Danielle. And today, it's just us, so don't get excited thinking that we're having another guest today. So you're going to have to deal with just Danielle and I today. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about a topic that I have the majority of my career experience in, as well as Danielle. We're going to talk about substance abuse and addiction. So just a little bit of background on me. I I didn't ask for this, but <laughs> in grad school, in graduate school, I did my practicum and internship in an um a residential substance abuse setting. And what a residential substance abuse setting looks like is it's detox and also, you know, as layman's terms, rehab. And based on insurance, which is a whole nother issue, the patients can stay, you know, almost up to 30 days. So it's, it's, it's residential. It's, it was a strict schedule to follow. Like in hour days. Yeah. Um, for, for the patients. And I, I learned a lot about myself as a clinician and I ended up really loving the dynamic of this, which is really interesting because it's an incredibly challenging and very difficult setting to work in because it, it is it is a lot of crisis constant I I don't say crisis in terms of like meaning people want to harm themselves all the time I mean like it is challenging when people are detoxing from their substance of choice they are getting their feelings back essentially so if you have been suppressing your feelings for quite some time you can imagine what that um, volcano explosion might look like when you finally start to feel those feelings again. So when I say crisis, I mean, there's a lot going on, you know, a lot of people going through things, a lot of support that's needed. There's a lot of uh, biological things going on too. I mean, people have been operating with a substance, whether that's drugs or alcohol in their body for an extended period of time at a constant level. And so, yes, the emotional flooding, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But there's the physical discomfort that goes along with it. And sometimes that can be pretty severe. So working at, So working with people at that level of care, both detox and residential treatment can be a crisis mode, quote unquote, whereas everything feeling catastrophic and reactions being extremely heightened and navigating the dynamics between a client's family who's trying to support them and the client's experience and like a very intense time of growth and development and major life changes all at once. So naturally, while not all of the clients that Christina and I have worked with are suicidal or aggressive or, you know, self-harming, that does happen. The experiences are intense. And Mm -hmm. yeah, catastrophic is the only way that I can really describe the emotional experiences that people have. I mean, like everything feels extreme and intense and needs to be taken care of now. Yeah. And I always, I've I've always said like, if you're new starting out in the field, this is a great place to learn (laughs) Um, because you kind of get thrown into the wolves and you don't have enough time to think. So I actually loved it. To be honest, my experience of substance abuse and what it looks like um, was very limited. And yes, I, I have had people in my life that have been, that have abused substances, but I just didn't have any education on it. So um, I learned a lot from working there and I learned a lot about myself and my personality um, was a really good fit for that type of environment. So much so that I stayed within that environment for eight years (laughs) of my life until I went into private practice. So 
a lot of people ask me like, what is your field of expertise? And I, I want to say based on experience, 100% working with addiction. Danielle and I actually met at one residential facility that we both worked in. Um, I trained her. Um, Listen, I was a clinician prior <laughs> to going there. Christina just trained me for the job. Yeah. You didn't did. teach me to be a therapist. <laughs> no, I didn't at all. Actually, I didn't have to. So it was really, it was really cool. And that's basically how her and I even became friends because I, she didn't piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> she knew what she was doing. But um, no, no, no. So um, yeah, we have a lot of experience working um, together. And we also, towards the end of my time there, her and I worked within the same program. We were, she worked with the women's program in the long-term treatment. I worked in the men's program, the long-term treatment. So we were very heavily involved in collaboration and working um, within the same environment together. So just to, Christina described earlier that residential treatment often, depending on insurance or um, payment, can last up to four weeks. The program that we were working in that was considered long-term was a long-term transitional program. So this program was designed to be anywhere from three to 12 months for the clients coming in. They were housed on campus or at a satellite. They they took time uh, over the course of the time they were in the program. They were attending groups every day and getting involved more in the community by going off campus to 12-step meetings and, and even just like leisure events in order to sort of re-engage them with what normal life looks like rather than that abrupt shift from an intense residential treatment program back to daily life. And so throughout the program that that we worked in, our clients were able to do written self-reflective work in order to move through what we called phases where they would obtain more freedoms and responsibilities and a more gradual transitional experience back into daily life. And so there was a lot of challenges that we faced within those programs and, you know, meeting our clients' needs being what they needed. Uh, but we also struggled a lot with the stigma and the ideas surrounding addiction. And sometimes even our clients struggled with that as well, accepting the fact that there was a problem, that they were not living a healthy lifestyle, that what they were doing was not sustainable, and that they struggled with addiction. Yeah, and that's really the premise of what Danielle and I wanted to discuss today, because talking about addiction in general is definitely going to be a several part series, because I could go many different areas with this, but, uh, and, and I get a little bit heated, so you're going to have to forgive me. The stigma surrounding people who have an addiction, or those who suffer with an addiction is, is horrible to me. And I think when you when you've worked in that environment, and you've been in proximity with people who are when I say suffering it is suffering and it is it is it is challenging sure and these are people that you see that these are people like like anyone this isn't just like the stigma of like that person sitting on the street corner you know trying to get money to buy drugs it's not just that this is people that you see in your office at work that you don't know that there's something going on this is this is your 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 aunt who fell and broke her hip and got addicted to pain pills mm-hmm. uh, and can't get off of it. Yeah. This is this is this sitting is- next to you in class who 
gets straight A's and shows up for for every test quiz and lecture and they're still struggling every single day. Right. So the stigma is that there's this quote unquote junkie persona and it's not that. It's also not like the, the person who's like pissed drunk falling down in a bar and like, you know, that's not what addiction looks like. Is that a piece? Yeah. I mean, these things can all be pieces. Oh, yeah. The stigmatized image that we have of somebody with addiction, that can all be part of the story. But that's not saying that every person who struggles with this disease, and we'll get into the disease portion of it, um, it's not saying that everybody who's struggling with the disease of addiction is so dysfunctional that they can't keep up the facade of a normal, healthy life. Right. And, you know, I mean, and there's different components. And it's really interesting because, you know, you, you, I thought I actually even going into it, I didn't know what I was going to be facing. But somebody with an addiction is still, they're still a person, they're still a human being at the end of the day. And, you know, Danielle brought up the disease thing like that. Nobody chooses this life. I mean, yeah, sure, you choose to you choose to pick up that first time or you choose to to make you, you make choices, but this is there's there's a part of your brain that that gets zapped in a, I'm talking in layman's terms. Danielle can be more scientific when um when that when that substance hits it. And I think I think the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because watching people go through that guilt and shame for the things that they did do in their active addiction is very real. There's remorse there. There's, 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 there's shame. There's not being able to forgive yourself. And um, there's, it is very heavy stuff and nobody wants to hurt. Well, I can't say nobody, but the majority didn't want to hurt people around them. They're hurting themselves at the end of the day. So there's a lot of different facets to it. And I've, I've had to deal with a lot of people in my life saying, you know, how could you do that? Oh, they're just junkies. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to save them. Mm-hmm. I, you know that, but I, I don't know about you, Danielle, that I literally can feel like the heat creeping off yeah. my neck. Like when people say that, like, I've had, what do you- I've had experiences that were turning into full blown arguments over mm-hmm. the dinner table with people who it, people in my life that I care very much about who were basically trying to tell me that addiction is not real. They need to just stop. These are horrible people. Okay, no, let's just stop right there. I usually yeah. shut that down because the fact of the matter is that if we go back to the disease aspect of addiction, there's actually a gene in your DNA, you see addiction usually run through families. And even if it's not your immediate family who struggles with addiction, like, you know, I'm a, a walking testament to this. There's addiction that runs heavily on both sides of my family. It's very, very real. It showed up very differently in different people's lives, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. And so I have noticed even just the behavioral tendencies, personality tendencies within myself that... I'm grateful that I worked in substance abuse for as long as I did because it really opened my eyes to the fact that I am already genetically predisposed to addiction. And this is something that I have to be careful with because the gene is there. And if I'm not careful and in control, that I could be the next person walking through the doors of a residential treatment center. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. It doesn't, addiction doesn't discriminate against, you don't, 
you don't have to be like um uh like on the low socioeconomic status <laughs> to to get addicted exactly. to a substance um over the course of my time i have worked with i have worked with young people who come from wonderful families and were raised in in healthy environments i have worked with people who um are professionals nurses doctors lawyers teachers other therapists it does not discriminate against against who you are or what you do so that stigma that it's someone in this low socioeconomic status is is actually not accurate at all it's actually false information and the the sin of it is and that's where the whole professional thing comes from it is really difficult to even get treatment if you don't have insurance or carry insurance um that can pay for it so that's a that could be a whole nother thing which is incredibly frustrating to to a clinician in that field when when insurance becomes an issue and can be frustrating to the people who want help but can't get it. Yeah, in our last episode, we had talked with our guest, uh, Sean, about some of the experiences that we have with our clients in substance abuse treatment centers and the fear that people have regarding help. Even if people do have access to insurance and medical coverage in order to support going to a substance abuse program in order to get sober, a lot of people have those life responsibilities that that they view as barriers to their wellness. And some of that is their high level executive job. Mm-hmm. That is their their fear of judgment and their mm-hmm. is, you know pressuring them to come home because they don't understand the addiction piece of things and and that it's not just something that you turn off. It could be the emotional component because the experience within therapy or a treatment center receiving help is intense and emotional and Mm -hmm. it requires you to be extremely vulnerable. And a lot of people are not comfortable with that. Um, So yeah, I mean, the insurance piece is a big part of it or the, the finances in being able to get to a treatment center and have the option to complete a program, but there's even more beyond that. I mean, once people mm-hmm. have that door unlocked, it's like, you know, what other barriers can be thrown in the mix? And that's the thing too. And I used to always stress this. You're in a bubble when you're in treatment and the real work starts when you leave. It segues into getting support. And that's the thing. A lot of people with addiction they're ashamed and they're afraid to reach out for help and they're afraid to admit that, you know, they have a problem. And it really, the barrier becomes that they don't reach out for support once they leave treatment. And it's, you know, so in terms of support, I mean, we all know that there's 12 step programs, AA, NA, and um, other, there's other 12 step programs too, or other uh, support group programs. And I'm not just saying, I'm a big proponent for um, a 12 step program. For Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, I think that um, it is incredibly beneficial. But that's not—it's not one size fits all. And I and I need to make that very clear that you know it, there's a lot of different ways to recover. And you know, I even want to take it a step further that you don't even necessarily need inpatient treatment to recover. It is certainly helpful if you have the opportunity to do so. But I don't know about you. I've known people that have gotten clean just going into meetings. Absolutely. And support. Yep. So. So I, 
I really think that getting support needs to be stressed in any way, whether it's whether it's a religious affiliation or just support groups in general that are out there, or whether it's just like knowing that you have people that you can reach out to. That's that's the whole premise to a 12-step program is the whole sense of community and gaining support because you can't do it alone. It's hard to do alone, especially because like Danielle mentioned, you're going through all of these heavy changes in your life and all of this vulnerability is coming out and you don't need to do it alone. And that's the thing that there are resources out there for you. So that's something that becomes a huge barrier for people when they do try to admit or try to get clean or sober. And it becomes a huge, a huge challenge if you don't have that support. Yeah. I mean like the, the residential treatment aspect can be really helpful when we're looking at people who are coming off of drugs and alcohol that are posing a life-threatening withdrawal. So there are some substances that people need to be titrated off of. If you suddenly stop drinking or using, there's life-threatening risks there. And some has to do with like medical complications that you may or may not know that you have, or you may not have at all, but there's a lot of danger in just stopping. And so a lot of the reason why Christina and I do support residential treatment is because there's generally a medical component to that where you can be monitored and kept safe. Now, there are people, and I have my own family, has gone through 12-step fellowships or other support groups and have gotten sober in that way. That's, you know, rehab is not the only way. I totally agree with that, Christina. But there is definitely a danger if you're Mm-hmm. monitored throughout the throughout the experience. So please know that if you are currently struggling with an addiction, you're in active addiction, do your homework and make sure that you're reaching out to not only mental support, addiction support, but also medical support to make sure that you're safe. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just to be even more specific, um, alcohol dependence and um, benzodiazepines. Benzo, I was just trying to figure out how to benzodiazepine. I was going to say benzos. Just trying to sound professional. Benzodiazepine addiction, you can actually have a seizure and you can die. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that like you, you, the, the chances of death are stronger with those two specific withdrawals if you don't seek proper medical attention. Benzodiazepines would be things like Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, Ativan, any substances within that class of medication. Mm-hmm. pose a really strong risk. Seizures are one, um, but there's there's other things. And again, of course, the way that your body, the condition that your body is in will have a huge impact as well because, you know, most of the time when people are using drugs or alcohol, they're able to see the symptoms of other medical issues or they are causing other medical issues that they're unaware of. Um, you just never know. And it's just always better to be safe than sorry. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the, and that's the challenge that comes in to a lot of people because of maybe the, the status that they have, whether they're executives at their job and they don't want others to know that they're going through this. So they hide it and they continue in the cycle and they don't seek the support that, that they need or get the attention that they need and the care that they need. And a lot of people don't know this either. And I remember learning about this in like grad school that I didn't know that either, that you could die, that you could have serious medical complications. Um, the benefits of residential treatment to people are 
like Danielle said, it gives you that space to safely medically recover. And also after uh, the medical recovery, the medical detox, there's emotional detox. And that is where the that is the next greatest challenge. A lot of times, uh, and Christina, you can speak to this too. I mean, when I was working with young women ages 18 to 25 when I had first started working with Christina. And I noticed that a lot of the clients that I worked with would not be able to handle the emotional component, mm-hmm. which would cause them to want to leave the program prior to their scheduled discharge. And they would be emotionally undone a complete mess and not be able to handle it, not want to handle it. And then would leave treatment to go right back to their former lifestyle of drinking and using in order to numb those things again. Let me tell you something. Addiction is hard. Recovering way harder. And when you are dealing with the vulnerability of expressing emotions that have been repressed for months or years, there is nothing more brave than facing all of that. Uh If you can get through that, if you can get over that first hump, it doesn't get easier, but it's, you're more well equipped to manage it. Yeah. And when you talk about like that, that first hump, I mean, when you're in the present, and this is why I really hate the stigma too, because it paints this picture of why can't you just stop? Don't you know your consequences? Well, no shit. We know drugs are bad. We know that abusing alcohol is bad. And I get that most people in treatment are not naive to that, but there is so much more that goes, goes into that. And I, I really, I get so mad when people judge this process. It is not an easy process and it is not for the faint of heart. It really isn't. And it is a major challenge and being in it and being so consumed in it that I was for so long, I got to really see that you could actually, I mean, you feel people's pain in that mm-hmm. and you can feel that like, and nom, I'll, I'll even take it another level. You can you talk to their families. I mean, it is, it is honestly like not easy. Nobody chooses that life. Nobody wants Mm-mm. that for themselves. And it's really disheartening that a lot of people in the general public uh, don't have that education or that knowledge of how actually challenging this is. What I think gets so in the way of people who are struggling actively with addiction is that stigma and the way that people make them out to be, like you were saying earlier, like a low socioeconomic status, the bum under the bridge begging for change, who, you know, looks like a disaster and unkempt and you know, that's, it's just not what it is. Nobody wants to be viewed as that person. Nobody wants to be mistrusted. Nobody wants to feel doubted, but, or, or be thought of as weak. But the thing is that our society has formed this image of people who struggle with addiction as being these like cretins. And it's like, that's not, they're human beings. They do experience pain. They do experience struggle. They do experience heartache, but what they don't experience is a healthy way of processing. And so they go through this addictive cycle and they don't ask for help because they don't want anybody to think of them as that person. Like, can we all just start accepting the fact that there's not a difference between being depressed and being addicted can we like finally experience the and, and accept the fact that like illness is illness, sickness is sickness, and like struggle is struggle, and mine isn't better than yours. But like, right. why do we have to think that one is better than the other or one's more acceptable than the other? 
I agree. I agree completely. I mean, I just get so mad. <laughs> but, you know, and I think it's just because I'm passionate about it. And I, I have to say, like, some of the some of the people that I've had the opportunity to work with, it was a, it's been a privilege, honestly. Absolutely. To be a part of someone's journey and to really and to be there for them and to, to create a space for that person, it is an absolute privilege. And, you know, not everybody makes it out of this. Mm-hmm. And I've I've known people I've known I hate saying I've known so many because it's so horrible, but it is so true that did not make it through this. And, you know, you get those phone calls. Mm-hmm. Somebody finds out and they call you and they tell you such and such didn't make it such and such overdosed and died such and such. You know, I, and, and it, it's it, it's never easy to hear those things. So not everybody makes it out of it. But they're but just because someone is addicted to a substance, their life isn't any more or less valuable than someone who isn't. So everyone deserves a chance at life. And unfortunately, these things happen. But that stigma of, oh, so, oh, they're they're just a junkie, whatever. They they don't deserve it. Whatever. That is so ignorant it's just like everyone dehumanizing yeah dehumanize yes like no one's life is any more significant than the next person regardless of what they do and it it is a shame yeah unfortunately people do die from this and it is horrible and it is upsetting and it is just like to me i look at it like any other disease i i i And I could get, I'm sure I could get a ton of pushback from that. And a lot of people would disagree with me and I respect people's opinions, but I'm just saying from my personal experience, my professional experience that it is, if you've not been there, you don't know. And that's fine. I don't sit there and pretend like I know what it's like to walk in the shoes of, of a teacher or a doctor. I don't pretend that. So, you know, just try and take this with an open mind and and a grain of salt. If you are currently struggling with addiction, please know that we have resources both at the end of this episode and on our Instagram page. We talk about this topic on our social media platforms, which is at no underscore BS therapy on both TikTok and Instagram. We will be making sure to keep uh, resources posted in the highlights, the get help section of our highlights on our Instagram page. And we are always happy to ask questions or to answer questions that you ask and provide any, any support possible. Yeah. And just know that, you know, if you are struggling, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have to do it alone. You don't. And you deserve, you deserve to live a healthy life. It's hard to ask for help, but it's mm-hmm. the only way out. Yeah. And we're, we're supportive of you. You know, we're supportive of, of anybody. I don't care if you have one day, one day clean. I'm supportive of that. Yeah. You know, the, the struggle is, is very, very real. It's not fake. It's not something that um, I take very lightly at all. So there's definitely help out there for you. Um, and, you know, and for family members as well. Um, there's help for family members who have people who are suffering with addiction in their lives. And we can't discount the family members, too because they have their own recovery that they need to, they need to process. So for just to sum up the stigma of addiction, it needs to be stopped, but I'm, I'm not you know, powerful enough to do so. But I encourage you, if you're not educated in this, just listen to this with an open mind. You know, we're coming from professional and personal experience and just keep an open mind. 
because this is this isn't something to be taken lightly. And you know, like I said, this is a pretty general episode, and you know, we can talk much more in detail about other topics surrounding this. I mean, there's co-occurring disorders, there's co-addictions, there's um, long-term treatments, there's things that we could talk about um, in more specific detail um, down the road. We know that addiction is an insidious and painful experience for both the person struggling with the addiction and their loved ones, whether it's friends, families, coworkers, anyone. Um, And so we want to make sure that you know that there is so much more to this. It's so much deeper and there's so much more education that we want to provide you. If you have somebody in your life who's addicted, love on them. They need to open up. They need to feel safe. They need to feel comfortable and they need your support. We are more than happy to continue providing that support through the, through our podcast, but we also want to make sure that you know where to look. So keep an eye out on our social media pages take a listen at the end of this episode for some starting points in order to get some of that help. And, um, and we'll be bringing you so much more in the future. So thanks for listening to no BS. Great start to our, our second season. And we are so excited about more guests and more information that's relevant to you and the experiences that you have. Thank you for listening guys. Uh, This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And um, I just, I'm really glad I have the platform to speak on it. See you next time. Bye. If you or someone you know is struggling with self-harm or a desire to end their life, please reach out to the National Suicide Lifeline at 800-273-8255 for 24-hour support.